Well, before you start really quick, I just want to say we are trying out new microphones that we both got over the holidays. Hopefully, there will be a noticeable improvement in quality of our audio, which would be great. So fingers crossed. Welcome to Fauna Facts, where we talk about weird facts about animals in a humorous way. Hopefully you don't already know them. I'm Grace. <laughs> and I'm Mads. Why was that funny? I didn't look, I didn't read from the cue. Oh. I don't have this memorized, so maybe that I was I know wise. you don't. <laughs> oh, okay. I guess it was pretty obvious. Um, <laughs> well, we talk about it pretty much every single time. Oh, do we? Gosh, okay. Maybe I shouldn't say anything. Then. No, 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 no. I just mean, I mean, every time it's a bit, it's a bit, um. Oh, yeah, I do always apologize when it's, um. And then I say, oh, well, we could just record one and just use that one forever. And you're like, no, 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 no. No, no I like it better this way. Or okay. do you want to do it just one? No, no, I'm happy to I'm happy to do it. I'm just gonna laugh every time because of who I am. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> Great. That's fair. Great. Today I was I think I might have bashed them inadvertently in a previous episode. <laughs> um so today I was gonna talk about monarchs and what you can do to help them or mm. should not do if you want to help them um, mm. because this is something I guess I'm passionate about maybe passion is wrong it's very something I'm interested in and I try to read more papers to fuel my argument on what you should do <laughs> so I can share this information with all of you so do I need to should I go through the life cycle of the monarch like why do people care oh. about them? Um, sure. They don't live very long, right? Butterflies don't live very long. Uh, well, actually, some monarchs can live very long. So, really? Uh, yeah. Because one of the things that makes monarchs, well, I don't want to say special, but something that's cool about monarchs is that they undergo really long migrations. Um. So, for example, a monarch in New York, it will hatch out in the fall, and then it will fly all the way down to Mexico, or I think there's some that actually fly to Cuba, but anyway, it'll fly all the way down to Mexico, it'll go into diapause, so it shuts down a lot of its systems, the reproductive diapause, so it can't produce any eggs or sperm, slows down, doesn't do much. And then it comes out of that, and then it flies north in the spring and finds a good place to lay eggs on milkweed. And then those babies hatch out, turn into adults, they fly north, go, and then they recolonize up until they get back to New York, Michigan, wherever, up there, Canada. What do you mean recolonize? 
So they all, if they lived over the winter in those places, they would die. So recolonize means they just reestablish themselves in oh. those places. Because for a lot of the year, there's no monarchs. Well, for the winter, there's no monarchs. And then they, over each generation in the spring and summer, they finally get up to their the northern part of their range. So they recolonize it. Hmm. Yeah. So that's why people... And then there's this big... The western population is not doing great. Hmm. The eastern population is doing better, but there's still... I think there's like been a 90% decline, 80% uh. decline in the last... I don't know how many years. Several decades. Um, I should have looked up these specific numbers, but it's a lot. Mm -hmm. So people are freaking out because they're charismatic butterflies. They're big. They're beautiful. They have this really cool migration that they go through. So I think there's other butterflies that might, well, there's other butterflies that migrate or disperse long distances, but not quite in the same way. So people are really interested in monarchs. So people like them. I like them. <laughs> so I here are some of my <laughs> tips backed up by research on what you should do <laughs> to help monarch butterflies. Okay. Okay. So a lot of people like raising monarchs. If you're raising them, I mentioned that they migrate and they go through reproductive diapause in the fall. Mm -hmm. So they know that reproductive diapause is caused by the food that they eat, like their food is getting older, the plants they're eating are getting older, the temperatures are fluctuating and getting colder, and then the days are getting shorter. And all those things make them go into reproductive diapause, which, and turn into, like they have different wings that are better suited for flying longer distances, in the fall when they go through these conditions. So there was some researchers at University of Chicago who were trying to raise these so they could do some genetic experiments. And so it'd be like, wouldn't this be great if we can get migrating butterflies in in the lab? Because no one's really figured out the cues for those, but wouldn't it be cool? Hmm. But they found that when you raise them indoors, it doesn't matter if you have all the right conditions for diapause. They do go into reproductive diapause. They do not migrate. Like, they do not have a direction, a flight direction south. If you put them in a little um, a flight simulator and look at which way they're flying, they don't, they lose that sense of direction flying south if you bring them inside, even for one night. Hold on, hold on. Several questions. Yes. One, flight simulator? Oh, maybe flight sim Flight, flight, what's the right word? They, okay, so they attach the butterfly carefully to a wire. And then uh at the top of the wire, and they're in this chamber, and at the top of the wire is a little apparatus that senses the direction that the monarch is flying. This is like in a room? Yeah, it's inside. How big is this space? 
I mean, they don't have, they're, they can't fly because they're attached by a wire. So they'll just kind of flap in place or flap in tiny little circles. So it's just a, like a chamber. I don't know. I haven't seen one in person. Wow. So it's only, it's not that big. Like, I think it'd be uncomfortable for a person to stand in. That's so interesting. But I haven't seen, I haven't seen one in person. But it's pretty, it's a pretty common. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's not common, but for these kind of studies, it is a common tool to use. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a better word than flight simulator, but yeah, that, I mean, it does, they're not really flying, they're attached by a little wire, but they're moving their wings and going in a certain direction. So yeah, Mm -hmm. if you take them as late instar or late older caterpillars, um, the pupa in overnight, then something happens and they just don't get the cue they need to know that it's time to migrate. I was just going to say, and that's different than the triggers for reproductive diapause. Mm. And that's just for caterpillars, or is that also when they're butterflies? Butterflies, I don't think it... I don't know. They haven't done the work on butterflies. But mm. this is just if you're raising monarchs in the fall. In the, I mean, in the summer, it doesn't really matter. In the fall, um, don't bring them inside. Got it. And mm. what else? Oh! And then if you're raising them from a commercial, there's places where you can buy monarchs and raise them. So that's cool. But they are their own genetic lineage. Hmm. They've been raised in captivity for so long that they have their own distinct markers that show that they're different from the other populations and they don't migrate. Mm. So... When you release those out in the wild... Okay, so you're dooming them. They're not gonna migrate, so... But it's... I don't know if it's good that they're mixing with the wild population. The jury's still out on that. But if you let them go in the fall, they're just gonna die. <laughs> they're not gonna fly to Mexico, so... Mm-hmm. They're captive animals that you're letting out in the wild. They're used to being reared in someplace else. What else was I gonna say about that? Hmm. I think that's all I have about those guys. But, yeah, I fully support people raising monarchs. Just be aware when you're raising them in the fall to think about those things. The other thing I was going to talk about was milkweed. So there's, I don't think it's a big problem in New York York and um, Canada. Really? Michigan. And oh, for those of you who don't know, my family's from Michigan, so that's why I keep talking about Michigan. Mads knows that. But yeah, so down in the south, there's a thing called tropical milkweed. So it's a really good, people like planting in the gardens. It's not as invasive. Well, it's invasive, but it's not, doesn't spread its roots like regular milkweed. It's really pretty. It stays in bloom longer. And butterflies really like it. And monarchs like it, but there's some problems associated with it. Um, so because it stays in bloom all year round, when the other milk would, would die, then it might be encouraging butterflies to not migrate. Oh. Or monarchs to not migrate. Yeah. And then because the monarchs keep using this plant over and over... 
There's also worry that they're going to get this parasite, which, hmm, can I pronounce this? It's, the shorthand is O-E, <laughs> and that's what a lot of people call it. But, Fair. um, Ofer, oh gosh, Ophriocystis electroscura. Sounds good. Yes. So it's this little protozoan parasite that lives on the milkweed, and then it kills them when they eat it. Kills the monarchs when they eat mm-hmm. it. Um, so there's a chance of that, like, building up over time because the plant never dies. Oh. Or doesn't ba- die back. Got it. Got it. So there's the worry for that. So I guess, I mean, my opinion is you shouldn't be planting it. But if you're planting tropical milkweed, cut it back in the fall so they're not laying eggs mm-hmm. on it. Just cut it back. That's what you have to do if you have it. There's other things about tropical milkweed. Can I ask a question? Yep. Ask. So does that presuppose, like, are we talking about places that actually get colder in the fall and winter? Like, for example, I know that there are a lot of butterflies in South Florida. Like, would it matter there as much? Yeah, that's an interesting question, because they have found that it used to be that they thought, oh, all these butterflies, if you're, they're migrating, they're going to go to Mexico. And sometimes they don't go all the way to Mexico. They found some go to Cuba. They found some stop in Florida and just start breeding. Hmm. So I think, I don't know, the tropical milkweed, I think the parasite thing is a problem. Mm-hmm. And honestly, for monarchs in eastern north america maybe they won't i don't think really you're just protecting the monarchs that migrate like they have this thing where they can migrate the northern part of the country and if you just get rid of migration they'll still be monarchs they just might not be as many in the northern Mm -hmm. part that's my opinion that's speculative but i that's what makes sense to me Mm -hmm. there are some problems i guess with the florida thing there are some problems in that there's some experiments in the lab so take it with a grain of salt but that under possible future conditions for like with warmer temperatures Mm -hmm. that the plant compounds cardinalides i think i'm saying that right um, that milkweeds have, and the latex that milkweeds have in these tropical milkweeds, it increases. Oh, I said that weird. So, tropical milkweeds, under warmer conditions, these cardenolides and the latex increases. The amount of latex and the percentage of cardenolides in the leaf increases. And usually, monarchs are pretty good at dealing with those things. But under really warm conditions, it gets to the point where the caterpillars cannot deal with them anymore and it's bad for them so that would be the problem with for the caterpillars living in florida even if they're not migrating yeah i think it's an interesting some interesting questions some of them i realized i just talked through the answer (laughs) for the first time on air so um hopefully that made sense because i think People are doing the research, but there's still a lot of speculation on how this is actually going to affect populations. Mm -hmm. Oh, one more thing. 
I'm not going to end on a downer note. <laughs> there is something you can do. Like, instead of a bunch of don'ts, there is some do's that you can do. So there's been some research showing that if you chop down all your milkweed in mid-July, especially the research was done in Canada and Michigan, in mid-July, you will help monarchs. Chopping down all your milkweed won't hurt it. Um, it has a really deep taproot, and a lot of farmers know that if you chop it down, it will come up unless you use some really strong herbicides. So it'll come right back up um, and make fresh, new, great leaves for monarchs to lay on. They prefer those leaves instead of the old crummy <laughs> leaves that you just <laughs> let live. And then it reduces the amount of predators that eat caterpillars when you chop down all the leaves. So, why? Because you got rid of all the leaves for the predators to live on. Oh, so small predators, small predators. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I just think about insects all the time. <laughs> yeah, insect predators. You're not going to be killing off birds and stuff, but got it. Insect predators. Yeah, it'll get rid of them. Um, so if you mow your milkweed in mid July, that helps a lot. Any later, uh, it's not great because you're probably going to be killing off eggs and caterpillars. But mid-July, yeah, actually is really, really effective wow. in increasing caterpillar survival. All right. That's, that's a positive. <laughs> a do instead of a don't. I knew I was saving something good for last. <laughs> I really appreciate your newfound determination to end on a positive note. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. All that cool animal. Oh, I won't say anymore. Yep. Yep, ending on a positive <laughs> note. <laughs> Running right now. Great. So wonderful. Amazing. Yep. Yep. Hopefully that was informative. I feel like my family has heard all of this. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hopefully there's some new information, but I think all the new information was super depressing. So oh my I'm gosh. sorry about that. It's fine. Um <laughs> I mean I'm really interested to hear after my mom listens to this, uh, because she is very knowledgeable about plants and I'm curious if she knows all of this milkweed. Facts, probably, but I don't know. Never, we've never talked about it. Yeah, we're since I'm in Arkansas, there people do plant tropical milkweed, which it's definitely outside its range, definitely. Right. So we're kind of on the border where it's like, might actually matter. I don't know. I don't know about Florida. Florida is like sounds like it's the wild west with monarchs. Are they migrating? Are they not? <laughs> What's going on? I don't know. I just imagined a butterfly in a tiny cowboy hat, and it was cute. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a cute image, too. So, I don't know. I'm sure there's some monarch people who are going to listen to this and get really angry. Good. Come here to get angry <laughs> about the things I talk about. That means you know something. I'm glad that you're getting oh angry about what I'm saying. I can't. So, okay. All right. What do you have, though? I, so over the holidays, I visited my family, the aforementioned family in South Florida, and we went to this museum that I really, really liked, and there was this one-off mention of something that I had never heard of before, and my dad is really into history and has read a lot of South Florida history books and knows a lot about it. And he had never heard of it either. And that is mm. ostrich racing, 
which... Wasn't that just, like, a Swiss Family Robinson <laughs> thing? That's what I always think of. Is that what you always think of when you hear about ostrich racing? Well, I've never heard of it, but that's, like, riding an ostrich. If, when I think about riding an... Are they riding ostriches? Yeah. Well, it's both. It's both riding and having them, like, pull a little carriage kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. So basically in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it just became this weird tourist attraction, specifically in Florida. It was in some other places, but it really blew up in Florida, you know, obviously, Wild West, (laughs) (laughs) for ostriches as well. Specifically, a really famous one was called The Ostrich Farm, and it opened in Jacksonville, Florida in 1892. It's said to be one of the state's oldest pastimes. What? (laughs) Back then, a visitor had the opportunity to ride an ostrich. All you had to do was pay 50 cents and weigh less than 150 pounds because that's the maximum weight an ostrich can carry on its back. Okay. 50 cents? That's kind of expensive for the 1890s. <laughs> it's an ostrich. I, I can't. I, 150 pounds, though. I didn't know it could take that much. Okay. Go on. Yeah, apparently. Hold on. Wait. Now I want to know what 50 cents is. Mm, okay. It was like... 15 bucks. Oh, I guess that's not bad. Ish. Okay. That's not totally crazy. Yeah. So apparently what they did was ostriches feel safer in the dark, so they would put a sock over the ostrich's head, and then once you're, like, on the back of the ostrich, they pull the sock off, and it leaps forward, and you have to... Just hang on. <laughs> they did have like saddles and reins and all of that kind of silliness. So, so it was like Wild West. It was like ostrich rodeo. <laughs> A little bit, yeah. And if if the riding the ostrich yourself sounded too dangerous, you could always sit in a little carriage that was pulled by the ostrich instead and from photos it seems like it could definitely pull more than 150 pounds, which makes sense cuz like it could have a carriage with a couple people in it. Yeah. It was kind of a dangerous thing to do because yeah. o- ostriches are not as easily trained as horses, for example. Yeah. And they can get pretty aggressive at times. Yeah. Apparently, male ostriches undergo really intense mood swings when female ostriches are laying their eggs, and so they can lash out at people standing nearby. <laughs> yeah. This is, can I interrupt with a story? Yeah, of course. Okay, so this is bringing back, when I was in preschool. Oh dear. (laughs) Nothing happened, but it made a big impression on my small mind. Mm. We visited a farm where a guy raised ostriches, and I remember his shirt was just full of holes, like his sweatshirt, (laughs) and he had all these scars. (sighs) And it was just from ostrich bites. And I remember as a small child that was terrifying. <laughs> bites? Not even like their claws? No, it's just bites. Wow. I mean, this is like I'm remembering, re-remembering what happened when I was four, but. Right. That is 
very wild. (laughs) So, yeah, I would not want to ride an ostrich. (laughs) Me either. (laughs) Yeah, so if you didn't want to do that, they did have professional jockeys who would race them. It was just like a tourist thing overall, so you could watch them being fed, you could hold their giant eggs, you could buy a lot of ostrich-related souvenirs. For example, like an ostrich feather used to be worth a lot of money because people would put it in their fancy hats, and that was very in for a little while. Hmm. Yeah. Are there, okay, are there photos of, like, people, like, Victorian, well, I guess it's not Victorian, is it? Anyway, like ladies with really long white dresses and men in top hats riding ostriches. <laughs> That's what I imagine. Kind of, yeah, it's not far off. It's pretty great. I'll, I'll, I'll send you some. Yes, please. So going down this path, I thought that was pretty amusing in and of itself, and I had never heard of it. And like I said, my dad, who knows a lot about South Florida history, had never heard of it. Um, it seems like it was a pretty, a fairly short period in time, like only a couple to a few decades that this was actually popular. And again, like mostly in Florida, but in other places as well. But while I was researching this, uh, I came across this organization called the American Ostrich Association. Okay. And I thought it was going to be like ostrich facts and other things and it is but it's facts about the nutritional pros of eating ostrich oh well yeah that makes sense apparently and i didn't write this down so i'm not gonna have it totally correct but apparently there was a time in florida where they i think as recently as the 90s they were trying to make ostrich meat more popular as livestock and so there's like a special law in the tax in the tax law about how ostrich is taxed as livestock not game or something else that makes it like an incentive for people to raise them and sell them and whatever just chickens and turkeys are they're just easier to raise I mean, I can't believe ostrich tastes that much better than a a chicken or a turkey. I think it is about the same amount of protein, but less fat, if I remember correctly. Looking at ostriches.org's nutritional info. The other thing that I found going down this road was there's a place called Chandler in Arizona that hosts the annual ostrich festival. (laughs) And reading up about the Ostrich Festival, it used to be, it used to have racing, of course. It doesn't now. It was started by the founder of the city, whose name was Chandler, last name was Chandler. And he was one of the first people to bring ostriches to Arizona after he saw them at the 1893 Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Oh, So by 1905, he had a really big herd of ostriches at his ranch in Mesa in Arizona, and it spurred other local ranchers to follow suit. By 1914, there were reports that ostriches were just dotting the landscape by the hundreds, and there seemed no end in sight for the profits, because like all these other ranchers were doing it too, and Chandler was trying to 
beat them out, but they kept going. And so it was just like a lot of competition. And it was the start of World War I, actually, that slowed the ostrich trade in Arizona and also nationally. So yeah, maybe like 30 years at most that this was popular. Well, it makes sense that they do well in Arizona. I mean, they're from the Savannah, right? So yeah, it's kind of... Mm-hmm. And so uh, then there were there wasn't a lot going on with ostriches for a little while in Chandler, but then in 1988, which means the Ostrich Festival had its 30-year anniversary in 2018, it was created to replace the city's annual spring festival because they wanted to do something more unique. Yes. <laughs> so... It's not as, like, heavy on the ostrich now. I looked it up. It's kind of like they have musical performances and amusement park rides. And there are, like, some actual ostriches there. And you can also eat ostrich burgers. But there's no riding or racing of ostriches. Yeah, I was when you said ostrich festival, I just imagine people putting ostriches in horse trailers and just driving across the country <laughs> to, like, show off their ostriches and win a blue ribbon or something. Oh, my God. I wish. It's probably good that doesn't happen, though. Agreed. A couple fun facts about the Ostrich Festival is that it became one of the Valley's most popular events, and the festival goers in 1990 surpassed attendance at the Grand Prix that was taking place in Phoenix at the same time. And also, the 1990 fil- 1995 film Waiting to Exhale, starring Whitney Houston, had a scene filmed at the actual festival. Ooh, I have not seen that film. I have not either, and now I, now I might have to. Yeah, I, I want to see how they incorporated an ostrich festival <laughs> into a Hollywood film. Also, why? <laughs> I don't I don't know. It was the 90s. It's true. You can say that about a lot of decades. But... <laughs> you are not wrong. You're really not wrong. Hmm. Interesting. It makes me want to look up pictures of ostriches and maybe visit some ostriches. I don't think I would ever want to try ostrich racing <laughs> or own ostriches myself. Hmm. All right, well, that's my ostrich story. I also realized I researched this one and talked about this one because I just saw it in person and thought it was really interesting. Sorry, I saw the museum exhibit in person, not actual ostrich racing. But then I realized that there's another story I want to tell about ostriches at some point in the future, but that is for another day. Oh, yeah. No, I have more to say about monarchs, so. Oh. Yeah, just in a different Different topic, not about how to save them, just biology. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. does not fit here since I think I talked for like twenty minutes about. You're fine. So did I. <laughs> no. No. Yeah. No. It was good. I mean, it was good. I think we did both did a good job. But I'm just saying that <laughs> I think it's good that you have more ostrich stories and I have more monarch stories. So. I do too. I agree wholeheartedly. All right. You want to wrap this up? I would love to. So, thank you all for listening to another episode of Fauna Facts. Happy 2020. Sounds like a fake year, but we're going with it. 
If you would like to see visuals for this episode, you can follow us on Instagram at Fauna Facts Podcast. Mm-hmm. And we also have a blogger, if you're not on Instagram, which is faunafactspodcast.blogspot.com. Please subscribe to our podcast. Give us a rating if you like, review, whatever. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we hope you had an enjoyable time. Bye. Bye-bye.